to Ghoulish Tendencies. I'm Gabby. And I'm Kim. And we are two paranormal investigators. And every other week we delve into the depths of the famous and not so famous cases of Moida, ghosts, legends, and lore with a healthy dose of debunking. That's my job. It's that's the scullying. If you don't know, you will because mm-hmm. scullying will and always does happen. That's true. And occasionally you get a molder in there with the finger that says, "Excuse me, sir, ma'am, it was an alien." Except, you know, usually that gets debunked pretty quickly. I was going to say, what if we ever actually had it was an alien as a legitimate excuse? Excuse me, molder. Dietlov pass. I no, no, no. <laughs> no, no. I'm no. <laughs> In case uh, no. those of you who are listening are wondering, this is a this is an audio medium, not a visual medium. But if it was a visual medium, you would see Kim's pointer finger in front of the camera and nothing else. So uh, there it is. That that's the uh, I'm going to Kim explain this finger. It's <laughs> <laughs> very prominent. It's a very prominent finger. All right, so. We have a topic today. We have a topic today? What? Topic today. Who knew? But this topic is a very interesting topic. And I have to say that I was talking to Kim when we were prepping this episode. And we were trying to think of true crime topics that maybe other people didn't know about. Mm -hmm. And maybe something that would be helpful to know about in the current climate. Um, But also something that's truly just a true crime topic. So for this particular topic, we don't have any ghosties, I'm sorry. But we have some really interesting information that I think you're going to enjoy just as much, if not more. And the topic for this week is the Roxbury murders that happened in Boston in 1979. This topic is about the fight against social and racial injustice. I want to give a warning in advance on rage because I felt a lot of rage when I was actually researching this. I was very angry during most of it. Probably wasn't the healthiest move on my part, but you know what? I shouldn't be the one that's the most angry, you know? You know what I mean? You'll know what I mean when we go through the topic. But there's some graphic details in this. There's also some political themes. So let's set the scene. The Washington Post talks a lot about racial injustice and social injustice in general. And I think right now we're seeing a lot of articles come forward about things that are going on in our backyards and things that some people knew about that have been happening for years and some people are being enlightened. And I wanted to talk a little bit about an article that was published that gave recent information about the last decade that applies to our topic today. The Washington Post stated that, quote, in the past decade, police in 52 of the nation's largest cities have failed to make an arrest in nearly 26,000 killings. This was according to uh, Washington Post's analysis of homicide arrest data. And in more than 18,600 cases, the victim was Black. Black victims who accounted for the majority of homicides were the least likely of any racial group to have their killings result in an arrest. While police arrested someone in 63% of the killings of white victims, 
they did so in just 47% of those with Black victims. Black homicides in majority Black neighborhoods had a 45% arrest rate. However, white homicides in majority Black neighborhoods had a 59% arrest rate. The rate for Black homicides in majority white neighborhoods was 55%, while white homicides in majority white neighborhoods had a 64% arrest rate. That's a really big difference, and it's really interesting to see that comparison from Black neighborhood to white neighborhood. And if we hone in a little bit more on the topic that we're talking about today in Boston, this is a really important point. The failure to solve Black homicides fuels a vicious cycle. It deepens distrust of police among Black residents, making them less likely to cooperate in investigations, leading to fewer arrests. As a result, criminals are emboldened and residents' fears are compounded. And that's a quote from the Washington Post. To your point, I think for anyone who has followed true crime, this is, it has been true for, I mean, this isn't a new Right. Again, we were talking previously about the Atlanta child murders. Sure. Which was 79 to 81, which was also right around the same time as the Roxbury murders. They were 79 as well. Yeah. So this this pattern of of black people being murdered in in Atlanta child murders case, black children, uh, over 28 children being murdered and and going missing, and, and the police just not taking it seriously. It wasn't exactly what you would call a priority, right? No, no. And Boston specifically is a city that forever has been known for its racial polarization. And when the Washington Post was looking at these percentages, the biggest difference in percentage was the 63% to the 47%. And it's the biggest differentiation compared to any other city in in the U.S., which is kind of nuts. So... More than a 1,000 unsolved homicides in Boston's three predominantly Black sections date back to the 1970s. And this is a quote. They said, this is a national epidemic. And it's interesting because I I would agree to this day that it's a national epidemic. Yeah, Um, it hasn't changed. Not much has changed. But this brings us to the case of the Roxbury murders. It was also known as the Stride Right murders because the first two victims were discovered dismembered in plastic trash bags. Mm -hmm. Yeesh. Could you imagine being that brand and being (laughs) identified as the Stride Right murders? No, although strangely enough, we we had our own plastic bag murder over the weekend. Oh my God, we totally did. Total sidebar. This should be for like, I feel like we should have started our episode talking about this. But in West Seattle, there were bags found by Mm -hmm. teenagers. Yeah, in the plastic bags in in the suitcase. And it was on, ladies and gentlemen, TikTok. You can find the video of them finding the suitcase on TikTok because of course you can. Because TikTok is now the eyes into the world of the unknown, right? That is terrifying. (laughs) I know, but it's legit. So there's that. Anywho, speaking of bodies and trash bags. So the murders occurred between January and May of 1979. So just five months period of time when 13 women, 12 of which were black, between the ages of 15 and 34, were murdered within several miles of one another in the Roxbury neighborhood on the south side of Boston. All but one of the victims were found in predominantly Black neighborhoods 
in the districts of Roxbury, Dorchester, Jamaica Plain, Back Bay, and the South End. Many of the women were strangled with bare hands or a scarf or a cord, and some were stabbed. Two were buried after they were killed, and two were dismembered. Several of the women had been raped. This was not suspected to be the work of one serial killer because usually you would think there's that many deaths in this specific place at this specific time within a short period of time and the way they were murdered are similar so a lot of people might think this might be a serial killer right but no it was not it was actually at least four different men that were charged on the accounts of the murders and this is a quote Although it seems clear the murders were the work of several assailants, the crimes were connected by the social system, which encourages violence against women by classifying women as the property of men. So I want to go through a list of the victims. And I want to say in prefacing this, it was really hard to find information on the victims. Something that I know that we like to talk about Anytime we talk about any kind of true crime is we want to know as much about the victims as possible. We want to provide as much information about the victims and their families, because oftentimes when we talk about true crime, serial killers, et cetera, the victims don't really get the spotlight. You usually hear more about the killers, right? And I dug deep. I, try, I went down many rabbit holes, but they were shallow rabbit holes, I will tell you that, because I couldn't get a ton of information. And I'll kind of give you context as to why in just a bit, but that's why the only information that I'm providing you with is the information that I'm providing you with. It's just really hard to find the info. So the first people that were murdered were Christine Chris Ricketts, who was 15, and Andrea Foyer who was 17. They were friends. They were found together, strangled on the sidewalk in East Lenox Street in Roxbury on January 29th, 1979. They were the ones that were found in the trash bags with the blanket. And Chris was a quiet girl. She had goals of being a social worker. And Andrea really helped her grandparents all the time. And that was something that I thought was really sweet. The person that was arrested in connection with the two killings was Dennis Jamal Porter. I could not find whether or not he was charged, whether he went to jail, or any of the information tied to him. So just FYI on that, it's kind of similar across the board. The next person that was murdered was Gwendolyn Yvette Stinson. She was 15. She was found strangled in a yard near her Park Street home on Tuesday, January 30th in Dorchester. She was a lively young girl who was saving up for gymnastics camp. As one of 10 children, Gwendolyn enjoyed the love of big family, and her siblings often joked that she was the favorite. Her mom notified local police when she became aware of her daughter's uncharacteristic absence. And apparently, the police failed to respond. They would not help her. She just wanted them to know that her daughter was missing and put out pictures of her, and they literally wouldn't help her. So she went to newspapers and radio stations in the area and asked them to post a description or broadcast a description or photo of, of her missing daughter. The only people that helped her out were at the Boston Globe and WBZN Radio. But it doesn't say... That was the only place she could get any kind of help. Yeah, no, no one else would help her. 
And I don't, it doesn't say in the context of my research, it didn't say like how they helped her or what specifically they did. It just is wild to me that a parent could not know where their child is and the, the police won't help them out. Like that's nuts. Right. Apparently her neighbor, James Brown, not the one that you know, but a different James Brown. Um, he was 40 years old. He was arrested for the murder. Again, we don't know if he was charged or what came of that. The next person was Karen Prater. She was 25. She was found dead on February 2nd near the Boston Parks Department office in Franklin Park. She was a mom. She had a two-year-old daughter and she was unemployed. On the day of her death, she was heading to her grandfather's place. He was 75. His name was Charles Prater. And she actually used to take him shopping all the time. She was beaten and stabbed to death, then left behind a wooden area near a hospital. Kenneth Spann was arrested in relation to her death. Again, we don't know what happened with him. Now, I think this is pronounced Daryal. It could be Daryl, but I'm going to say Daryal. Daryal Ann Hargett was 29. She was found strangled and bound in her apartment in Wellington on February 21st. She was a social worker and a choir singer, and she was described as quiet and serious by those who knew her. Her murder was never solved. Then there was Desiree Denise Etheridge, 17. She was found beaten and burned to death on Fellow Street in Dorchester on March 14th. Her skull and jaw were shattered. I found that she didn't die of the burns. She died of the blunt force trauma and was burned she was a part-time student who lived on the same street as stinson so it's nuts same street her body was found 100 yards away from a school the same school where the bodies of rickett and foyer were discovered and she was identified because of the bracelets that she wore every day her murderer was not cited darlene rogers was 22 she was stabbed multiple times and was found naked from the waist down in Washington Park on April 14th. Her murderer was not cited. Then there was Lois Hood Nesbitt. She was 31. She was found dead in her bed, tied up and strangled by a radio cord on April 28th. The Boston Globe reported her as the, quote, eighth black woman slain. Her murderer's name was Richard Strother. He was 31. And apparently he lived in the same building as her. There's no mm. connection as to whether or not they knew each other or whether or not they lived in the literal same space or if they lived in different apartments or units. So they, they lived in the same building or you don't know if they lived together? They lived in the same building and we don't know if they lived together. So it could have been a domestic issue, but we're not sure. Correct. Okay. So then there was the Lyric Holiday. She was 19. She actually was conscious and didn't die right away. She called the police. They arrived at her apartment on a Friday night, and she told the police who stabbed her, that it was Eugene B. Conway. He was 18, and he lived in the Dorchester residence with her. And this is where I question, is this also domestic? Because it doesn't specify if they lived specifically together or, again, in the same building in different units. Well, because domestic incidents are a certain branch of homicide for sure only because it has been super clear to me as, as you've been explaining so far, these deaths are not all related. Correct. 
but they get grouped together as the Roxbury murders because you had this pattern of black women being murdered uh, over a, a short amount of time in the same area. Yeah. And as a result of this, I mean, again, the the lack of attention. Were any of the murders, that, as far as they could tell, were they all isolated or were they, were some of them possibly done by the same person? So the only one that was done by the same person were the first two because they were together. Right. The others were not, it didn't specify anywhere. Okay. So, well, the reason why I wanted to talk about this particular incident is because she didn't die right away. And she actually could identify the person that attacked her. And she actually, he was arrested that night and pleaded innocent. There's literally no information on whether or not he was charged and found guilty. And if anything came of it, but unfortunately, the next morning, Valeric died. The next person was Sandra Bulware. She was 30. Her naked body was found charred in a burning grass lot near a YMCA at 5 a.m. She had just moved to Boston a year prior from Connecticut. And her sister was the one who identified that she was missing. And after three days, she reported it. And her murderer was Osborne Jimmy Shepard, who was 55. We don't know what happened with him. The next person was Bobby Jean Graham. She was 34. Her autopsy stated that she died from a lacerated liver caused by multiple blows to her midsection with a blunt object. She was found in an alley by a man that was driving past. And apparently earlier in the night, a woman had actually said that she saw a couple walking toward the alley, but the woman was so intoxicated she couldn't walk. So the man picked her up and carried her into the alley. Uh, red flag, ding, ding, ding. Maybe you should have reported that or checked on that woman. That's just me. Um, because the next day, Graham was found with blood on her body and indentations from a heel on her chest. Mm-hmm. And the murderer was never found. But I think it's safe to say that whoever she went into that alley with did it. So there's this source that I used. It's called Harvard Crimson. And they had this article It was called As Different as Day and Night. And Michelle D. McQueen wrote it. And he talks a lot, I think it's a he, he or she, talks a lot about how the police didn't really do their due diligence with these crimes. And I think that's kind of obvious with the lack of information that we have. And this part I thought was really wild. And I have to share it because it's nuts. So after the fourth murder... People were upset. I mean, people were upset in general. But after the fourth one, a lot of people were just like, I can't take this anymore. We need to do something about it. And State Senator Bill Owens and the mother of the four victims demanded a public meeting with the mayor, who was Kevin White at the time. And apparently he hastily arranged a conference at the Bates School in Dorchester. And 700 people showed up to that meeting. It's a lot of people. The mayor insisted that, quote unquote, community participation was the answer to the problem of violence in Black neighborhoods and, quote, not necessarily increase police protection, which was the solution that everyone had demanded. Pause. What in the actual fuck? You're going to blame the people and say it's your responsibility to protect your people and not claim responsibility and say, well, maybe you should have more protection because clearly people don't feel safe. Take that information 
and then give it some context. Apparently, a week before this happened, there was another meeting that was called. And it gives a bit of a context to the way, and a context and contrast to the way that the city handled crime. Since November 18th, eight women in a predominantly white neighborhood had been victims of rape or attempted rape. So at a meeting attended by police representatives and community residents a week before the Dorchester meeting, this was reported on the front page of all of the local newspapers. So it was like top news. The police commissioner promised, quote, we're going to get this guy, end quote. The district attorney Flanagan promised, quote, no fine, no probation, no suspended sentence, end quote. And the district 14 detective Paul Rufo declared, quote, it's my problem. It's my community. It's my district. We want him as bad as you do, end quote. So to compare that type of support for a community to what the mayor told everyone at Dorchester, that it was a community participation issue <laughs> is nuts. Kind of a slap in the face, right? It's like, um, excuse me, sir, your priorities are showing. The police then explain the cases in treatment in terms of the differences between the cases because people called them out. They were like, yo, you can't say that for one and not the other. What's the deal and why? And they were saying that in Brighton, which was the area of Boston where the white rapes happened, in Brighton, they suspected that one person was the perpetrator of all the crimes. And in Roxbury, maybe they had three or four different suspects. And because the police said they didn't feel, quote, that stepped up police protection was necessarily the solution to the Roxbury problem. So through the logic of using fewer police to catch more criminals seems dubious at best. This is the very reasoning that guided the assignment of officers to the different cases. So they had less people supporting wider variety of criminal than one. And it's just nuts to say that Literally, the people and the police in that area were given this direction with that explanation, and people just took it and ran with it. So you can tell that the Black community was definitely not feeling supported. And the main source I mean, of, that's an understatement. Right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> in general and uh, in current news, right? Just look at the news today. So... Now, speaking of news, this is a great segue. Uh, let's talk about media. So one of the main sources of media in Boston was the Boston Globe, which was problematic to say the least. So they had previously portrayed the social climate of the time in not the best of ways. They published stories about Boston's poor treatment of Blacks with the busing situation. Apparently, there was a Black attorney who had been stabbed with an American flag, and there was an attack on a Black high school football player, but they twisted it to make it seem like it was the fault of all of the people of color, which is kind of nuts. So that's the perspective that the Boston Globe was taking at this time. And the January 30th, 1979 edition noted the discovery of the bodies of the first two murder victims, who then at the time were unidentified. and guess where they put this article? They put it on page 30 and it was beside the racing forms, which apparently is like entertainment. And it was only in a four paragraph description. And the headline was two bodies found in a trash bag. Just super vague. Clearly it was not a front page concern. Next day, January 31st, the murder of Gwendolyn Yvette Stinson was noted on page 13, not front page, page 13. 
I mean, but Gabby, like it's it's the seventies in Boston. You you understand? I, <laughs> I mean, do get that. This is not. I mean, I I understand. Like it's horrible, but none of this is shocking. Unfortunately, it's not shocking. But I no. just got to give you the deets. So, page thirteen. It says Dorchester girl found dead. February sixth. Karen Prater's death. Apparently now we can put a small block on the front page. I don't care what city you're living in. If there's a murder that's happening, you should probably know about it. Like regardless of the complexion of that person. So that's just my opinion. But clearly again, like you said, it was the seventies, but mm, I still don't think that's a good excuse, but that's just me. I'm not saying it's an excuse. I'm just saying that this is not stuff I can talk about as being shocked because the level of racism that, I mean, obviously still exists, but at that point in time, there was such a history of it. And there was such a history of, of people of color being undermined and their crimes not being taken seriously that I I can't be surprised by any of this because it's just, it was part of the culture. The, The crimes being ignored was so horrendous, but it's not shocking. (laughs) Sure. Well, and that's the thing is like, on top of that, you have to think who's the audience, right? Like who's reading these papers and who- White people. (laughs) Right. And so what do they want to see? So you're all- White people. (laughs) Right. So that's why things are getting pushed to page 13, page 30, because it's not the the priority for them, which doesn't make it any less of a priority for anyone else who's reading the paper. But, and I'll get into that in a little bit where we'll talk about like why things are focused on in media, right? But I want to give you a few more details first. So- Finally, Karen Prater's death was on the front page. It was literally a tiny little article. And apparently it was really confusing. It wasn't very clear. And then there was another article next to it that had a weird tone of community outrage and police resources, almost like they were trying to put a bandaid on top of it. Like, cool, so this happened, but here's some sources. And it didn't really address the issue at hand. On February 7th, on the eighth page of its Metro report, The Globe covered a community meeting with Mayor White, which is the same community meeting with the 700 people where he was told that the community needed to be more involved. So, you know, at least they're covering it, yes, but the context in which they're covering it is vague. And context was everything. The Boston Globe reeked of complicity. The placement of the stories and amount of attention was concerning, but the perspective was worse as we're talking about it. It only chose to speak of Black crimes to criticize the Black community in Boston. And on February 21st, Daryal Ann Hargett's murder was featured inside a small box in the lower left-hand corner of the front page, and they misspelled her name, which I thought was so bonkers. But again, I guess I think it's bonkers, but at the time, maybe they just didn't care. On April 1st, the Boston Globe published an article discussing how unsafe the neighborhood was and stated that whistles were passed out at the Roxbury Multi-Service Center. But an interviewee stated that, quote, in this city, you can whistle, yell, scream, and do anything you want, and nobody is going to help you, end quote. In another article published on the same day, the Globe discussed the police's hesitancy to share evidence when Deputy Earl Bolt said, quote, even if an arrest is not made for 20 years, we must protect the evidence or there will never be a case that would hold up in court. So I agree you have to protect evidence, but also apparently he seemed really hesitant to share any information at all and was prodded and questioned, but the answers were very vague. 
So I think that's a little strange to say and be published. Having said, if it doesn't happen in 20 years, we still have to protect our evidence. It almost sounds like an excuse. Like you can put it off and not deal with it and use the excuse that you don't have enough evidence to put it off. So that's just as an outsider. So the police didn't exactly give two cents about the murdered black women since they labeled them as, quote, runaways drug addicts and prostitutes and this very much implies that the police won't even help if someone specifically of color is in danger even if they have a whistle like the fact that they were handing out all these whistles but the reaction from the community is what's the point of a whistle no one's going to help you anyway like really what's the point it seems like cool i'm making an effort i'm hearing you quote unquote i'm hearing that you have concerns I'm going to do something about it to shut you up for now. I'll give you a whistle. So it's almost like putting the fault almost even on the woman (laughs) instead of thinking like, where's all these men? Which again, it's the 70s. Gee, I wonder where that idea came from. (laughs) It's just nuts. Like that you're thinking like, okay, well, what about all the guys? Like, shouldn't you be telling them, hey, maybe don't kill people and like rape them, right? Like, I don't know. But that's not a new concept. (laughs) Um, unfortunately it's not. And we still have these issues to this day. So some people need to just, you know, get it together. So in response to the black community's outcry over the handling of the murders, the globe editorial urged the community to quote, pull together and keep the pressure on end quote until solutions are found until Boston leadership learns to respect the rights of its residents equally. However, the lack of protection for inner city minorities will remain politics as usual. And that's a quote from the Harvard Crimson, which I actually thought was a great source. I'm not sure how popular the Harvard Crimson was at the time because it doesn't say a lot about this particular source in other sources, but I had to really dig to find information on them. And there were some really fantastic articles that were published by them that seemed unbiased and also a voice for the Black community. So another source of media was the Bay State Banner. It was actually a Black community weekly publication. And this is what everyone in the Black community would read. And it started to give more information on the murders as they came out than the Boston Globe. And the perspective obviously was very different. So the information from the source was absorbed by, you would call a limited audience, right? And then there was... The group of people that came together that put their foot down and said, I will not take any more of this. And had these people not come together and published what they published, we would not know about this instance today. And they were the Kimby River Collective. They were a Black Boston queer socialist feminist collective in Roxbury from 1974 to 1979. And they drew connections between the violent deaths and the multiple systematically marginalized identities of the Black female victims. They basically responded to what was happening when it was happening and created literature for women to read that was a quality source. And they believed the murders weren't just racially driven, but were both racialized and sexualized acts of violence against Black women. It was started by Barbara Smith, And on April 1st, following the sixth death of a Black woman in Boston, people were still even more so fed up. And now they took to the streets. They had a protest memorial march. Sound familiar? 
They started in Boston South End at the Harriet Tubman House and paused first at the Wellington Street apartment of Daryal Ann Hargett, who was found strangled on the floor of her bedroom. And now this is a quote from Barbara Smith, and I wanted to read this to you because I think it's very powerful. The message came across loud and clear from the almost entirely black male speakers that what black women needed to do was stay in the house. That's the way you saved yourself from being murdered. You stayed in the house and or you found a man to protect you. If you were going to leave the house, you had to find a man to go with you to take care of you. And also the murders were being viewed at the time as being completely racial murders. It was all women and some of the women had been sexually assaulted, but they were still seen as racial murders. There were a lot of feminist lesbians at that rally. So there were at least some people there that when they heard the message that these were just racial murders, our ears perked up, stood up, whatever. And we were thinking, no, no, I don't think so. Because there was something called violence against women that we were all too familiar with. And we just felt so, it was just such a difficult afternoon because at one level, we were grieving because black women were being killed. We felt like we were at risk. We knew we were in fact, we were scared. It was a very frightening time to be a black woman in Boston. So there was a kind of collective shared grieving. And then there was this real feeling of real fury. It was just infuriating because we knew that it was not a coincidence that everybody who had been murdered was female. And as it turned out, by the time it was over, 12 black women had been murdered. So Barbara Smith, her anger and frustration at the rally speakers, failure to acknowledge sexism as a factor in the deaths of the women propelled her into action. She created a pamphlet called Six Black Women, Why Did They Die? Highly recommended. You can look it up and find it. We'll put it in our show notes. It actually is interesting. This is like an asterisk moment where Kim actually told me about this and called it eight black women. Why did they die? And I was like, wait, I thought it was six black women. <laughs> yeah, you were like, I, I read one, but it was different. Yeah, but apparently it wasn't different. And no. the title literally is six black women, but the six is crossed out. And well, then it, it, it was, they did six, then they crossed out seven and then it was eight. So yeah. they, I think updated it or I don't know. I mean, yeah, it was finally published at eight. And at that's eight, why, yeah. yeah. But when but it was started, it was 12, six. you know, so. God. Unfortunately, but this was published to really get people's attention and it was distributed to women in, in the community. It specifically focused on the murders that were not being covered extensively by the police or the media. So we're talking about now, you heard about what the media was covering. You saw that the police really didn't give a shit. And Smith said, quote, we had to look at these murders as both racist crimes and that we really needed to talk about violence against women in the black community. We needed to talk about these women who did not have men as a buffer. Almost no woman has a man as a buffer between them and violence because it doesn't make any difference if you are married or heterosexual, whatever. All kinds of women are at risk for attack in different kinds of circumstances. And in fact, most women are attacked by the men they know. So obviously having a man around isn't going to protect you from violence. But we really wanted to, first of all, get out that sexual political analysis about these murders. We wanted to do something consciousness raising about what the murders meant. We also wanted to give women hope. Which, super powerful, right? 
This was a yeah. really risky thing to do at this time, though, because technically she fit the description of all the people that were being murdered. And so to be able to have that voice to come out and do something about it, as well as... Knowing all- she could become a target. Absolutely. And it's all the other women involved in this community as well. But they had the power to do it and they did it. And it was the first literature to be widely distributed within the neighborhoods that were most affected by the murders. It became a major tool of outreach, both for organizations working explicitly around the issues of women's safety and for the politics of black feminism. So they included a list of things that you could do to protect yourself. They included self-defense methods, And it actually made people feel like there was something they could do to impact their community immediately, which I think that's an issue for a lot of concerns. Like we talk about this now, like you can post all you want on your social media, but what are you going to do to impact it? What's your action? What are you going to do? And this is, this was their version of social media, you know, was creating this pamphlet and sharing this information. And can you imagine going through this in a time without social media and the internet and what we have at our hands now? So that's exactly what these people did. It was probably a million times harder to do too, because you have to get this information out there in a more effective way that is not the way the media is getting it out there. So a lot of women greeted the pamphlet with a sigh of relief. They recognized the concern and commitment embodied in just a simple brochure. And this is a quote, one reason that attacks on women are so widespread is that to keep us down, to keep us oppressed, we have to be made afraid. Violence makes us feel powerless and also like we're second best. That's in the pamphlet. And I had to share that with you because I thought it was so powerful. Powerful is like the name of this episode. Powerful. (laughs) Another quote that I really love from this was, what has happened in Boston's Black community is a thread in the fabric of violence against women. And the collective actually received a lot of support from local churches and especially from the white feminist community, which they initially were hesitant to receive due to the recent case of rapes in the white community. I mean, also white feminists, dot, 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 dot. (laughs) Disclaimer. (laughs) Yeah. But also, can you imagine being compared to the uh, other women in your city that are the different skin color than you? They're not the same. They're not dying. Not to say that rape is not bad. It's awful. Nobody should experience any of these things. But the amount of attention that went toward rape victims compared to the amount of attention that went toward more people that were murdered. Which is is ironic because the amount of attention, attention given to rape victims is appalling. Right. It's absolutely ironic. So you could imagine why the collective was hesitant to receive support from the feminist community of the white people in their surrounding neighborhoods. So in regards to the white community that was handled very differently, this is a quote, the structures of race relations did not easily allow black and white women to identify with each other's common oppression, which is very accurate. So out of all of this, you might wonder, okay, but what happened? So what came of all of these things? Yes, we brought attention to it. Unfortunately, a lot of the murders mentioned here that did not have a murderer were not solved and are still unsolved to this day. But what did come of it was the Coalition for Women's Safety. And this was implemented pretty immediately. And it was an organization of Bostonian women who worked to combat violence against women in response to the murders to, quote, take back not only the night, but all of the places and times women live in. This included women from many political and neighborhood groups and of all races. So 
they came together in the end. And two courses of action were to be taken with this coalition for women's safety. The first was to educate their community, specifically young people and the people that worked with young people about the matter of violence against women. And the second thing was investigating licensing and operating regulations of taxi drivers because apparently there was a high number of assaults that would happen within taxis and people just thought that the drivers didn't do anything and wouldn't do anything. Or maybe the taxi cab drivers were the ones committing the assaults. They also offered self-defense workshops, firearm workshops, support groups, training of health service workers to deal with assault victims, and setting up a trust fund for children of murdered women. I love the last one. The last one makes me feel so warm and cozy inside because it's like this kid is left without their mom. How are they going to afford anything? So to see, to know that the community is still there for them and providing them with support, it's almost like a GoFundMe for back in the day, but specifically for the children of murdered women. So they produced a pamphlet of newspaper clippings documenting all of the murders that happened and shared with neighborhoods outside of the city. They wanted to help elevate awareness of what was going on and not have it limited to the walls of their city. Because as we know, the police were in denial of the crime in their city and the media wasn't exactly a reliable source. So they wanted to spread the information outside of Boston. This created elevated visibility, not just of sexism, but also racism. It raised issues of racism within our community and neighborhoods in ways that reflect our efforts to deal with our own racism. As long as racism separates us from women of color, we will not be able to end the violence we all face as women. Something that was also published within the pamphlet that was the six women pamphlet, the first one, was a poem. And literally gave me the chills when I read it. So I kind of want to read it now for you guys and for you, Kim. So I want to give a trigger warning. This does speak to rape. It speaks to violence. If you don't want to listen to this part, I completely understand. But I do want to share it with you. And it was written by Tazaki Shange. She was a very well-known playwright and... At the end of Six Black Women, Why Did They Die? This poem was there, and it's called With No Immediate Cause. Every three minutes, a woman is beaten. Every five minutes, a woman is raped. Every 10 minutes, a little girl is molested. Yet I rode the subway today. I sat next to an old man who may have beaten his old wife three minutes ago or three days. 30 years ago, he might have sodomized his daughter, but I sat there because the men on the train might beat some young women later in the day or tomorrow. I might not shut my door fast enough, push hard enough. Every three minutes, it happens. Some woman's innocence rushes to her cheeks, pours from her mouth like the Betsy Wetsy dolls have been torn apart. Their mouths menses red split. Every three minutes, a shoulder is jammed through plaster and the oven door. Chairs push through the rib cage. Hot water or boiling sperm decorate her body. I rode the subway today and bought a paper from an East Indian man who might have held his old lady onto hot pressing iron. I didn't know. Maybe he catches little girls in the parks and rips open their behinds with steel rods. I cannot decide what he might have done. I only know every three minutes, every five minutes, every 10 minutes. I bought the paper looking for the announcement, 
there has to be an announcement of the women's bodies found yesterday, the missing little girl. I sat in a restaurant with my paper looking for the announcement. A young man served me coffee. I wondered, did he pour the boiling coffee on the woman because she was stupid? Did he put the infant girl in the coffee pot because she cried too much? What exactly did he do with coffee? I looked for the announcement, the discovery of the dismembered woman's body. Victims have not all been identified today. They are naked and dead. Some refuse to testify. One girl out of tens, not coherent. I took the coffee and spit it up. I found an announcement. Not the woman's bloated body in the river, floating. Not the child bleeding in the 59th Street corridor. Not the baby broken on the floor. There is some concern that alleged battered women might start to murder their husbands and lovers with no immediate cause. I spit up. I vomit. I am screaming. We all have immediate cause every three minutes, every five minutes, every 10 minutes, every day. Women's bodies are found in alleys and bedrooms at the top of the stairs before I ride the subway. Buy a paper or drink coffee from your hands. I must know. Have you heard a woman today? Did you beat a woman today? Throw a child across the room. Are the little girl's pants in your pocket? Did you hurt a woman today? I have to ask these obscene questions. I must know you see the authorities require us to establish immediate cause. Every three minutes, every five minutes, every 10 minutes, every day. And that is a powerful poem. So there's some very frustrating aspects of these cases, and there's a lot to take in. There's a lot to be upset about. This is a case that I personally found to be very hard to not get political about because we could talk about the crimes. We could talk about the details of the crimes and the people and who they were. Again, I couldn't find a ton of information about it, but the points that I wanted to come out of this topic as a true crime topic is what we specifically focus on and what is focused on in these crimes. And one is the violence against women. I know I briefly mentioned it previously, but shaming women, specifically black women for violence brought upon them, instead of making men who inflict said violence do something about their own behavior, regardless of race. Like that is a very frustrating point. Also, the lack of intersectionality. Um, if you don't know what intersectionality is, it's defined as the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, and gender as they apply to a given individual or group regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. That's basically what happened to the women in Roxbury is that they were focused on as a race case, not as a sex case. And it was both but it wasn't covered as both until the collective gave more information. And then we can talk about the lack of the media coverage, the information that was chosen to be shared. Why was that information chosen? We talked about how like your audience might be white, so you might not want to talk about these things, or maybe they don't have that priority to them. And it's the seventies context, right? But it kind of makes me think of, it's this thing called agenda setting theory. If the media thinks it's important, they're going to publish what's important. And that's why we don't have the information now is because it wasn't published in depth by all of the media sources that are tracked and saved. Like I literally, I don't think I've researched something so in depth other than reading a book. Like, 
And uh, obviously, like, I had to read a book, guys. I had to read a book. I mean, I've read oh my several God. books. God forbid. You know I love a good book, though. It just takes time to read the books, right? So with this, it was one of those topics where if I can't even find this much information, it's hard to find even a book, right? What I did find are books that are all about Black feminism. And that becomes a very heavily political topic. And I wanted it to be more focused on the crimes at hand and how they happened and what the context was there. So not having the right information then dictates what people remember. It dictates what we continue to talk about. It almost goes back to like topics that we even choose to talk about on our podcast and other podcasts that exist out there, other true crime podcasts that choose topics that are all based on a certain demographic, but being able to focus on not just one demographic, but everybody and bring forward a topic that not a lot of people know about. I didn't know about the Roxbury murders before Kim told me about them. And then I was like, oh my God, I have to cover this. It's so good. And when I say good, it's just, it's an interesting topic. It's like, good, good, but (laughs) it's like not the good kind of good. You know what I mean? Like it's informative. And I think it's a topic that needs to be addressed and people need to hear about. Because if we don't perpetuate the information that needs to be heard, it gets it dissolves. You you don't necessarily know about it. And we see things happening today that are very similar to what happened in 1979 in Roxbury. And it's unfortunate that we see that kind of stuff today. But all we can do is spread the proper information as a platform where we can talk to other people. We want to make sure that we can even share the information they didn't know about. And that's why I chose this topic because we can be considered media coverage today of a podcast. And I want to share that information with you guys. Oh, I have to share about Kendra Hicks. Kendra Hicks is a a modern day artist and she lives in Boston and she chose to do a display of art in the city of Boston where it was commemorating the 40th anniversary of the deaths of these women. And even people in the city didn't know about it. And this is something we don't live in Boston, but we didn't know about it. But people that lived in Boston didn't even know these things happened. And so it was called the Estuary Projects. She actually put up a different piece of art at the same day and time in which a murder was committed. So because these were very back-to-back, so there was there were two deaths that happened on the 29th, one on the 30th. And within five months, there were 12, right? So she did 12 pieces of art within that period of time and they only lasted 24 hours because she didn't have a permit to put up her artwork. But it was a way that she could express and pay homage to the women that died in the Roxbury murders. I thought that was really cool because it's a great way to share your truth and your artwork by exposing others to a topic that they might not have known about. So I can post pictures of her artwork because I think it's pretty cool. There's some online that I found and that way you can see it and see what someone of modern day is doing to bring attention to crimes of the past and how we can help educate ourselves and other people to what's going on in our cities and what has happened in the past that other people might not know about. Because at the end of the day, the more you know, you know? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to just thank one last time the Kimby River Collective for all of their hard work toward this cause and for documenting so much. Because Kim and I always go off on tangents about how much we love to research. And Kim especially loves to research. Hmm. And uh, (laughs) it's all about the source and finding the right one. 
And knowing that the source that you're referencing is quality, I have to tell you, when I was researching this, the Wikipedia link just kept coming up. And I kept trying to search the links within the Wikipedia links to get more information. A lot of them are dead. Yeah, they don't all work. Yeah, they're out of date links. A lot of the information that I did provide, some of it is from Wikipedia. I'll send a link to that too. I don't usually like to reference Wikipedia, but I I didn't have a ton of sources for this one. I just had what I could find, but I also think the pamphlets, being able to access those was really cool because it gave perspective of what people were going through when all this was happening. So that's the Roxbury murders of 1979 in Boston, which brings us to... Critics Corner. Creepy Critics Corner. Sorry to be such a downer. (laughs) It's just, you know, true crime, man. Um, Kim, what have you been watching and listening to lately? Uh, I just watched, well, for my uh, horror discussion with Kim class, we did a double feature of The Ring and Ringu, which was a a good time uh, comparing the source material, the 1998 Japanese Ringu to the 2002 Americanized version of the film. Uh, It's interesting because when I I first saw Ringu a number of years ago, and uh, I have to say it's actually creepier to watch on like a crappy TV and a crappy version of the film. Really? Watching it. Yeah. Well, because it's, it's, you know, the American version is much more slick, uh, bigger budget, bigger stars, because that's, American filmmaking and the original one is much simpler um and watching it in a really creepy like really crappy VHS copy of it makes it feel very real I could see that where you watch it when it's it's kind of too nicely you know on a big screen tv and it looks really pretty you're like oh this isn't as creepy as I remember it being uh, but still a, a wonderful film um I also just rewatched. The 2011 Filipino horror film, The Road. Oh, I haven't heard of that one. Uh, it's really interesting. And I will say, because it's it's divided up into a couple different sections. It, it skips through time. It starts, it's like, I think it goes 2008 to 1998 to 1988. And I personally find the first section to be the most effective. I think it's genuinely creepy. It's a little supernatural film. Um, and the, the first section that takes place on that road is genuinely very, very off-putting and very well done. Mm. Uh, the story kind of loops around by the time they get to the ending, it gets a little bit, but it's, it's really, really interesting. And it was actually, it was the very first Filipino horror film I ever saw. I had not oh, seen cool. a horror film before that. Nice. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's worth a watch. It's kind of a, it's kind of a fun little film. Uh, and then I, I started recently, I haven't gotten very far, but I'm a big fan of the show, the terror. Oh Um, yeah. I started watching that too. The first season's great. I have watched the first season, but I just started the second season, which, uh, it's an anthology show. So each season is standalone and the very first season, which was, I thought spectacular. Uh, and it is dealing with the Royal Navy expedition of the HMS um, Erebus and the HMS Terror. Uh, 
I almost wanted to say the HMS Shagged Sea because that reminds me of Austin Powers. No. Uh, HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror. And so it's based on historical events that happened, but then takes kind of their own. And and a lot of the characters are real people. They're based on real people. Mm -hmm. But it takes this sort of supernatural direction that's really, really interesting. And the second season uh, takes place on the West Coast. It's California uh, during World War II. Oh. uh, It has this... Um, like it, I know that it's going to get more into like internment camps. Um, but the, the supernatural element is a kind of Japanese spirit. Oh, and I haven't gotten very far into season two, but so far I'm really enjoying it. I think it's, it's kind of an underappreciated show. Uh, and I, I hope that it continues because I think it's, it's been, it's beautifully shot. Like one of one and in, in the, in the second episode, when it starts, or the second season, excuse me, when it starts out, there's this gorgeous shot of this woman walking out on this pier, this dock, as day is breaking. And they do this wide shot of her walking and the sun. And it is it is stunning cinematography. Like, it is, it is so cinematic, the way it's shot. It could very easily be a movie. And I'm sure watching on the big screen would be kind of amazing. It's so funny that you mentioned that because I I haven't finished season 1 yet because you know I start things and I don't finish them. So yes, I'm in the process of watching that and like 75 other shows. But <laughs> um I thought the same thing when I was watching it that it really looked like a movie, almost just like a yeah. really drawn out long yeah. movie in different parts. Well, and spectacular cast. Oh yeah. They get just some phenomenal on both seasons, just some phenomenal actors. That's awesome. I love that. I'm like really excited right now that I can be like, oh, I know what you're talking about because I'm getting better at watching horror. <laughs> I, I feel I feel proud that both you're watching it and that you're making Terrence watch it. Uh, you know, what's funny is with the terror, I started watching it on my own. It was one of like my shows that I watched. So that mm-hmm. way, like when he's not home, he doesn't get mad at me for watching something right. without him. Watching something creepy too. But then what ends up happening is he gets home and sits down and starts watching it while I'm watching. And he goes, this show's really good. And then it shows yeah. something really gory. And he's like, oh God. But like... <laughs> Like, you know, I don't personally love gore myself, but because the like quality of the show is so great and it's so well written and it's so beautiful, like yeah. I'm down. It's beautiful gore. It's beautiful gore. Yes. Well, and it's it's one of those shows too. I always find it interesting when the human element is really the terrifying thing. That's oh, the yeah. you know, that's the play in the words. Well, and I always find this funny, and I like that I'm saying this because I am currently at my parents' house uh, for a visit, and they're in the next room. That, um, so it's very possible that my dad is going to hear every single thing I'm about to say right now, but my dad has this funny thing with horror because he, he hears it's horror and his face just does this. It's horror. So it's not, it's, I'm not going to like it. I'm going to go into this and I'm not going to like it. But the thing is, here's the thing. There's many things, but here's the thing. (laughs) A, not true. B, not true. C, <laughs> this is someone who watches every single like CSI and Criminal Minds and war movies. And I find those so much more horrifying personally because these are all shows that are based on real violence. Yeah. Right? Real violence, not ghost violence or fictitious Jason Voorhees violence. Right. Real honest to goodness violence. And I find it fascinating. That one is is lesser somehow or not going to be as good as the other. Anyway, 
I think it's just based on perspective, man. Well, I think again, it's the stigma of horror. I think yeah. a lot of people hear something as horror and they automatically shut down. Well, the amount of times I've gotten into that, that's not a horror film argument with people. And I'm like, I will cut you. Oh I my God. I love you. hearing, I love hearing those stories. Those are my favorite <laughs> stories. Well, it's, it's, it's aggravating because horror is not a four letter word. It's, it's not. And, and I, again, people need to broaden their horizons on what horror is. It is, it is more than saw. It is more than slasher films. And as long as we have told stories, we have told ghost stories and scary stories. So screw you all. <laughs> Moral of the story, screw you all. Moral of the story, screw you all. Speaking of horror, Silence of the Lambs is a horror film. Yes. Okay. So speaking of which, that was one of my movies I was going to talk about I for know, Creepy sorry. Critics Corner. No, it's okay. It's a perfect segue. Um, I hadn't seen it in like probably 20 years. I'm dating myself now, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen it in a long time. Very, very, very long time. And all I have in my head is Kim Douthit going, <laughs> Are the lambs still screaming, Clarice? <laughs> Like as it should be ever. as it should be um and it's i need to make it my ringtone for you anytime you call me because even though my phone's on silent all the time uh but anyway that movie is fantastic and it is absolutely a horror movie and my like the i think the cringiest part of that movie has nothing to do with any of the horror aspects but it's the finger touching the hand so slowly and gently as he hands her the papers through the jail cell and just see you say creepy i say hot <laughs> oh my god see this is how you know the difference between me and kim Douthit. hot so there was the silence of the lambs that i watched mm-hmm. and then i also watched hannibal just you know hot. little piggyback hot. moment hot. per recommendation of kim obviously hot. she really loves mads he is her favorite yes, I do. Or, um, you know honestly or hugh they're, they're both, both babes also, um, the woman that plays Alana Bloom, hot. You know, you, Kim is a happy camper when she watches Hannibal. Pretty much all the people on that show, hot. Hot. Even, I'm not, not going to go there. Never mind. Um, no, not the mushroom people. Everyone no. else, though, hot. Perfect. So I was going to say, Kim really loves those uh, fun, she loves the fun guys. Huh? You, mm. uh? <laughs> so dumb. Uh, I had to put a dad joke in here somewhere. All uh, right. So there was that that I watched. And then, my boyfriend got very brave and said that he wanted to watch a horror movie. And I wanted to show him originally, I wanted to show him the conjuring too, because we just covered. Oh, Enfield. Yeah. Enfield. And that was based off of it. And I wanted, he knows about that topic because you know, if you're in my life, you know about all these things. So, but then I had to start at one and not go to two first and start at one first. Um, and it fully scared him to death and <laughs> had nightmares all night. So uh, I'm trying to not do that too frequently to him because, you know, but I will say that he put poor on Silence Putin. of the Lambs. I know, poor Nugget. Poor um, my, my little chicky, chicky nuggy. But yeah, that's what I've been watching. And then also, because uh, again, I watch 75 million things, but I've also been watching um, Dear White People. Mm. which actually is really good mm-hmm. um, and would recommend. I thought it was pretty good. But that brings us to the end. So thank you for listening. If you would like to follow us on social media, our Instagram is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. We will be going live again starting in July. 
And that way we can get some FaceTime with y'all. So stay tuned for that. If you want to see pictures of the things that we talk about, fair warning, this episode is not going to have that many pictures. I could only find like three. So for the same reasons of research. But we also have Twitter. And our Twitter is Ghoulish Podcast. We also have Patreon, which is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. But if you like donating to things, don't donate to us. Donate to Black Lives Matter, please. Um, And we have links to all the different places where you can donate on our show notes as well as on our website. Our website is ghoulishtendencies.com. You can find all show notes there. You can find all of our episodes there, all of our social media, anything your heart desires, you will find there for the most part. And we also have a Facebook page, which is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. So having said that, thank you for listening and 